listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Okay, now is the time for a scripture reading. Right? Yeah. Um... The scripture reading for today is Isaiah 9, 1, 7, 1 through 7, I mean. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, of on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as a joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their, their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks for that reading, Zachary. Before we get started, I got to say a quick thank you to Walter Steenson, who covered the pulpit last Sunday, giving me um, a great week off, a uh, week away uh, from work. Uh, Walter did a great job, um, and if he, what he said last week is true. He is streaming this service right now at home in his bathrobe. So, Walter, to you, I just want to say thanks, man. I appreciate it. Also, we got to say thanks to Joni Martin. Uh, where is, is Joni in here somewhere? I don't see her. She's, she's somewhere. Oh, she's with the kids. That's right. That's right. Of course. Well, we got to say thanks to Joni. Hopefully she'll hear us if we clap loud enough. And to all the volunteers who helped decorate this place. It looks amazing. It looks really good. Um, but thanks to everyone who helped, whether you helped to maybe carry stuff up from the basement level. You're actually here helping with the setup. Uh, it looks awesome. Thank you all uh, so much. What a blessing. So if you couldn't tell by like all the decorations and stuff, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and we are kicking off a brand new teaching series that's called What's in a Names? What's, what's in a Names? It's a little clunky, but you will get used to it. What's in a Names? And for the next four weeks here in worship, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, the passage Zach just read for us, where the prophet Isaiah looks ahead to the reign of a future king who's going to bring deliverance for God's people. And Isaiah gives us four titles for this king, four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to do a deep dive into each one of these. We're going to hit one a week. So this week we're starting with Wonderful Counselor um, to really kind of get the, the marrow out of this passage and uh, talk a bit about how Jesus fulfills this hope in some surprising ways. 
Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper with these teachings, there's a couple things you can do. First, if you look in your bulletin, you're going to find something new, this uh, sermon notes page here. Normally, this is just blank, um, but we're actually labeling it for sermon notes, and we've got this little box going deeper, where every week throughout Advent, we're going to give um, some suggested readings from Scripture and uh, maybe a reflection question or two, so that if you want to build on what we're talking about here at church on Sunday morning, um, you can do that throughout the week. So um, take advantage of that. We also have small groups that are going to be meeting throughout Advent, uh, and they're going to be studying this book, Names for the Messiah, which is an absolutely awesome book. It's going to be connected to what we're talking about in here every week. It's only a four-week commitment, right, because Advent is only four weeks. Um, It's 100% online. These groups are going to meet virtually using Zoom, and there is still space. There's still room. We've got four groups running, um, I believe, Only maybe one or two of them are full. So if this is something you're interested in, if you want to connect with some folks, see some friendly faces on a computer screen, um, and dive into uh, a really unique study for Advent, uh, please do sign up. Stop by the Connection Center before you leave, and we will get you connected to that. Now this text Zachary just read for us. Um, How many folks in here have heard this passage before, maybe a part of it? Like maybe you've heard some of these names, that's most of us. So there's, there's at least a word or a phrase here that sounds familiar, hopefully. This is a really famous passage from Scripture, Isaiah 9. The line about how um, a people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, that might sound familiar, because that actually pops up in the Gospel of Matthew right at the start of Jesus' ministry. That line gets quoted. Then you've got that line, um, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. If you've been around a church at Christmas time, you know this stuff. You've heard some of this before. There's even this famous section in Handel's Messiah based off um, these lines, especially highlights these names. It's really cool. I'm not going to sing it uh, for you because I want to save your ears from that, but we do have a clip, um, so go ahead and run it if it works. cool. How many folks have heard that before? It's really cool, yeah. Some folks are clapping. When, uh, when our live stream gets pulled off of YouTube for copyright violation, this will be why. We'll all know. Um, but I love it. I love that part where the, the violins kick in. Oh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Very powerful. This passage is what a lot of Christians would call a messianic text. It's a text from the Old Testament that we believe points to Jesus in some way. It points to the coming Messiah. 
And like Christians get really excited about messianic texts. We, we, we like to point to them as almost a proof text, like they, they prove that we're right about Jesus, which you know maybe reflects some insecurities there. Um, but I've gotta say, as excited as we often get about texts like this, Isaiah 9, messianic texts, we don't always read them very well. Like as Christians, Reading these texts in the Old Testament, we tend to get so excited about connecting them to Jesus that we often totally miss their actual context, which is pretty problematic. See, most of us can quote these lines, we know unto us a child is given. We've heard that before. We have a vague sense it has something to do with Jesus. But very few of us could actually tell you what's happening in Isaiah chapter 9. I won't do a raise of hands for that. We can't tell you what's actually happening in this story, the flow of the narrative, what Isaiah is actually talking about. We don't know much of that stuff. Because as Christians, we often just kind of jump right to Jesus, connecting this, getting whatever we can, whatever we can extract from it about him. And that's not reading the Bible very well. That's not showing respect to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Bible, the only Bible Jesus ever knew, and I think we can do a bit better. So here's what we're going to do. This sermon is basically going to have two parts. Uh, We're going to get to the Jesus piece. We're going to talk about Wonderful Counselor and how Jesus um, fulfills that promise in some very surprising ways, but that's going to be part two. We'll get to that in a few minutes. First, We've got to talk about what's happening in the book of Isaiah, the original context of this passage. Because if we don't get to that, if we don't cover that, for one, we're not going to read this text very well, but also we are going to miss some things about how exactly Jesus fulfills this passage. So are you with me on this? We're good? See some nodding? Excellent. Let's dig into it. Isaiah 9, I'm going to reread this starting in verse 2 just so it's nice and fresh, and then we'll actually talk about it together. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I feel like we should all like snap after like a good poetry reading, right? All right, couple of observations uh, right off the bat. First, this is a poem, right? This is poetry. We see it broken into lines. The Bible translators do the hard work for us to clue us in that we're reading poetry. 
More technically, it's an oracle. That's the type of poem it is. Basically, think like um, beat poetry meets a sort of revolutionary political track. That's basically the type of literature we're dealing with here. And this particular poem was written by the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. It's like the 700s B.C. That's almost 3,000 years ago, about 800 years before the time of Christ. That's really old. This is a really old poem we're reading. And as you might have noticed from all that talk about like the, the, the rod of the oppressor and garments rolled in blood, the 8th century B.C. was not a great time to be living in Jerusalem. Um, the Assyrians were the big bad guy seen at this time, the Assyrian Empire, absolutely brutal empire. Uh, ancient Israel had split in two by this point. There was a civil war, so you had the northern kingdom of Israel in, in the north, and Judah, which was capital was Jerusalem in the south, Israel and Judah at this point. And around the time this poem was written, that northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, and it was awful. The Assyrians slaughtered the people, destroyed the buildings, sowed salt in the field so nothing could grow there again. Absolutely terrible destruction. And then the Assyrians, after they destroyed Israel, they attacked Judah and Jerusalem, where Isaiah is at. That's the backdrop for this. Then to make things even worse, if you go a little bit before this passage, Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, There's this story where you've got all these local regional kings over these smaller kingdoms, neighboring kingdoms of Judah, who are plotting together to invade and destroy Judah themselves. So you've got the Assyrians breathing down your neck, constant fear of invasion and war, and then all your neighbors want you dead too. And as if that wasn't enough, the king at this time in Jerusalem was a guy named Ahaz. And King Ahaz was kind of an idiot. (laughs) Ahaz was one of the bad kings uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, He was a coward. He was always running around in fear of all these other kings from other kingdoms who were after him. Um, He was incompetent, selfish, uh, zero leadership ability, more focused on retaining power than actually governing. Um, Nothing like our politicians today, right? King Ahaz. Is my mic okay? Is it cutting in and out? I thought so. Okay. I'm going to switch over to here because I picked up on that. Probably needs new batteries, but I'll take care of that later. Is this any better if I'm here? Okay. Uh, In the sound room, just turn this mic up a little bit in the house and turn it up maybe a lot a bit on the stream. Hopefully this works. So like King Ahaz, selfish guy, bad leader, is this better? Okay, good, I'm coming through, excellent. Um, King Ahaz, on top of all that, he was also an idol worshiper. He actually brought idols into the temple in Jerusalem. So like all around bad guy, all right? So you've got the threat of invasion from Assyria. All your neighbors want you dead, and your king is an incompetent ruler, we'll say. Not a good time to be in Jerusalem. So when we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. We kind of understand this darkness now, right? Hopefully we have a little better picture of what Isaiah was talking about. 
threats of invasion, incompetent king. But what's this light Isaiah is referring to? What's the light in this darkness? A people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What's the good news in this passage? That comes in verse 6. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's the good news? Someone shout it out. Okay, I can't hear you with the masks on. A child has been born, right? There's a baby. There's a, there's a birth that has happened. A new king has been born. Notice, this is not strictly a prediction. Like Isaiah's not talking about there's going to be a king born someday. A child has been born. This baby was born at the time of Isaiah in the midst of this mess. And the context of the book of Isaiah makes it pretty clear that this baby was Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah. How many folks, anyone know the story of King Hezekiah? I don't know if this is like totally new information. Some people, a couple hands. Okay, not many of us. That's okay. If Ahaz was like one of the worst kings in Judah's history, Hezekiah was one of the best by far. He was a great king. He's like up there with with David and Solomon, all the great kings from the Old Testament. Uh, Hezekiah stood up to Assyria and restored peace in the land. He passed a bunch of religious reforms. He got rid of his dad's idols. He established justice and righteousness. Hezekiah was a truly great king. And this oracle, this poem in Isaiah 9 reflects the hope that this little baby Hezekiah brings with him to the throne. There's a new king in town. And under this king, things are going to be different. There's joy in the kingdom again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This new king is going to be a wonderful counselor. But as great as Hezekiah was, he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. Um, To help push back against the Assyrians, Hezekiah allied himself with uh, this new up-and-coming kingdom called Babylon. Maybe you've heard of them. Um, He brought the Babylonians down to Jerusalem and showed off all of his gold, showed them the storehouses, all the gold of the city, which was a pretty bad idea. Because if you know the Ark of the Old Testament at all, couple generations after Hezekiah died, the Babylonians rose up, crushed the Assyrians, and became the new big bad empire on the scene. And it wasn't long before they marched down to Jerusalem, destroyed the place, and carried all that gold off for themselves. Oops. Right? So like Hezekiah... It was a mixed bag. He was a great king. He was a really good king. Huge improvement over Ahaz, but he made some pretty bad mistakes, arguably because of him, because of his pride and arrogance. His entire people were carried off into exile. And then after Babylon, you get the Persian Empire. 
then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, empire after empire, all these authoritarian regimes bearing down on God's people, oppressing them, threatening to destroy them for 800 years. Can you imagine what that would do? Like 800 years of foreign occupation and rule? All that suffering, all that violence, war, exile? I don't even want to think about that. And yet somehow, the people in Jerusalem never lost sight of that hope from the prophet Isaiah. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government is going to be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. What if we had another king like Hezekiah? Only like the real deal this time. Someone who could come in, liberate us from our oppressors, bring salvation to the entire world. What if we had an anointed king, a Messiah, which literally means anointed king, who would be like Hezekiah times 10? Do you see how like a beat poem from the 8th century BC about the birth of this king would become a source of hope to a people living under Roman oppression at the time of Jesus? Do you see that connection, that thread? Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what happened with this passage. It became a sign of hope and expectation. Jesus stepped on the scene eight centuries later after 800 years of suffering and crying out for rescue and he fulfilled this hope in some very surprising ways. With the time we have left, let's actually talk about how Jesus lines up with this first title, Wonderful Counselor. And this is going to stink because I can't see the screen, but it's okay. It'll work. You've got two words here, hopefully, wonderful and counselor. Uh, when we say counselor, that's a royal title. That's a governing title. Think like king or ruler, administrator. We're not saying that Jesus is a great therapist, okay? Counselor means king. Um, it would be interesting to have Jesus as a therapist, but that's a, we won't go there. The wonderful part, though, wonderful is where this name, this title, gets super interesting, in English, we tend to think about wonder as like an exclusively positive thing, right? Like when you hear wonder, you think joy, awe, mystery, like all the best stuff from every Christmas movie ever, right? That's wonder. But wonder is a double-edged sword. There's a dark side to wonder that's usually lost in the English translation. A word like awe might capture this a bit fuller. Like, you can feel awe at good things like the birth of a child or a miracle. You can also feel awe at the sight of a tsunami coming your direction, right? It's not always positive. There's this thin line between wonder, between awe, and terror. You actually see this reflected in words like awesome and awful, right? Both of these words have awe as their root. So like if you have some awe, that's, that's good, that's awesome. But if you're full of awe, look out, right? You see the relationship there? Same idea with wonder. It's sort of equal parts joy 
and terror. Where they overlap, that's where you find wonder. When angels show up in the Bible, the people always wonder at them, which is to say that they are absolutely terrified. Wonder is disturbing. It's upsetting. It's scandalous. We might even say offensive. It upsets the established order. And this is especially true in the life of Jesus. One of my favorite stories about Jesus is in Luke chapter 4. It's his first public sermon, uh, the very start of his ministry. Jesus goes to his local synagogue in Nazareth and he unrolls the Isaiah scroll. So he's reading out of this book of Isaiah. And as he reads, as he teaches, the people wonder at Jesus' words. They're amazed at him. They're filled with wonder. Isn't this Joseph's son? What wonderful teaching. Like three verses later, those same people are trying to throw him off of a cliff, right? If you know this story. That thin line between wonder and terror. We see this pattern over and over again in the life of Jesus. The same people who marvel at his teaching one minute are turning on him the next. They come to him for a miracle and then they end up denying they even knew him. The same crowds on Palm Sunday who are chanting, Hosanna, save us, those exact same people are shouting, crucify him by Friday. That's that double-edged sword of wonder. I'm a pretty big fan of Christmas, personally, if the, if the sweater didn't give it away. Uh, I really like Advent. I really like this time of year. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? But it's also a season where we get a lot of fluff which I don't like as much. We see polar bears selling Coca-Cola, right? And like jolly old Saint Nick. Like I don't want to sound like a Scrooge or anything. This stuff, is, this stuff is great. It has its place. But it feels very saccharine, very sweet, um, maybe a little shallow sometimes. And it wouldn't be a problem if this was just polar bears and Santa, but sometimes it goes into how we talk about and how we think about Jesus at this time of year, too. The pictures of Jesus we see around Christmas are that nice, sterilized Jesus. Sweet little baby Jesus who's blonde for some reason, right? <laughs> That's not Jesus. Um, rosy cheeks, almost like a little baby Santa Claus cooing in a manger or, or resting against his mother's breast. That's not Jesus. There's nothing safe about this baby. This baby is dangerous. The, the real Jesus is going to rile some people up. He's going to call out the hypocrisy of religious folks, people like us. He's going to go toe-to-toe with the rulers and leaders of his day, and it's not going to end well. This baby is going to hit the scene like a hurricane, turning the entire world upside down. King Herod is going to try to kill this sweet little baby Jesus because he correctly perceives him as a threat. This is not polar bears selling Coke. This is not a sweet little manger scene with the rosy-cheeked, blonde Jesus. This is the story of a new king entering the scene, a rival king. 
A king whose authority is gonna call into question every other claim of power and authority over our lives. A wonderful counselor. How ready are we for the birth of this baby? Like, how ready are we for Christmas and the coming of the Lord? How ready are we for this scandalous, sometimes dangerous task of actually following Jesus into the world? Are we ready for this? I'm going to spoil the answer. We're not. None of us are. I'm not ready. You're not ready. And I think that's why we get a whole month to prepare during Advent. I think that might be why we do this over and over again, year after year, this same story, this same season, preparing our hearts, because we know deep down we are not ready for this. We want the good stuff from Jesus, right? The healings, the miracles, the spectacle. We're not so sure about that other stuff, though. We want our sins forgiven, but we're not big on actually addressing those sins. Actually having to address how we have hurt other people, how we're hurting ourselves. We're super excited about resurrection, but the the death part that comes first, we we don't really want that so much. We want the grace Jesus offers, but actually practicing that grace by loving our enemies following a king who commands us to lay down the sword, take up the cross, and follow him, that's a lot harder. Maybe you're here today or you're watching this online and you're someone who has never accepted the invitation to follow Jesus as your king. If that's you, I want to invite you to journey with us this Advent. Join us in person. Join us online as we think through these titles together and maybe consider becoming a follower of Jesus. The perks are pretty sweet, I've got to say. Eternal life, union with God, forgiveness of sins, I like that a lot. But Jesus warns us over and over again to count the cost. You might lose friends. You might have to change some priorities in your life. Following this baby in the manger might turn your entire world upside down, but it will be wonderful in every sense of that word. Let's pray. Wonderful counselor, we invite you to scandalize us this Advent. Uproot us, Lord. Shock us. Mystify us and fill us with wonder. Transform us and give us the courage to follow you. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. You are our king. For anyone who hasn't made the decision to follow you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them this Advent. Reveal yourself in their lives and beckon them to follow you. And for all of us, Lord, we pray that you would call us anew into the wonderful task of discipleship. Empower us to follow you and to join you in the work of transforming the world.
You are our wonderful counselor. And we praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.